the uh, Senate Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. Uh, we are convened today to consider four of President Biden's nominations. The Honorable Rufus Gifford of Massachusetts to be the Chief of Protocol. Ms. Lee Satterfield of South Carolina to be an Assistant Secretary of State. The Honorable Isabel Coleman to be Deputy Administrator of the United States Agency for International Development. And the Honorable Christopher Liu to be Representative of the United States of America to the United Nations for UN Management and Reform. Uh, Senator Haggerty and I have both agreed that we'll defer our opening statements because we have some of our distinguished have two of our distinguished colleagues that are with us uh, to introduce. And since I might have some judicial nominations before the Judiciary Committee this year, I'll recognize uh, Senator Graham. Thank you. I owe you one. Okay. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman and Ranking Member. I really appreciate this. It's a big treat for me. Uh, Ms. Satterfield is from South Carolina, a University of South Carolina graduate uh, with a degree in journalism. Her father was a legendary football coach at Furman that won a national title, and she's being nominated to be the Assistant Secretary for the Bureau of Educational and Cultural Affairs and State. She's been endorsed by the last six Assistant Secretaries for that position. The Alliance for International Exchange, Public Diplomacy Council, and the Public Diplomacy Association of America, and Trey Gowdy. <clears throat> I don't know how much you'd care about the last one, but he's a good golfer for whatever that matters. But the reason Trey's doing this is that she's uh, well-respected in our state. We're proud of the fact that President Biden chose her for this job, and I look forward to helping. Um, in this position, she has... She, she's been involved in this space for a long time. Uh, she launched the Center for Diplomatic, Diplomatic Engagement, the Center for Global Leadership. Uh, she has executive branch experience prior to this nomination in the Obama administration. She served as a, acting Assistant Secretary of State and Deputy Assistant Secretary of State in the Bureau of Educational and Cultural Affairs. So she knows what she's talking about. Uh, she's also served as Deputy Chief of staff for protocol of the United States. During the Clinton administration, must have been a child back then, during the Clinton administration, she serves as chief of staff to the Secretary of Labor and a special assistant to the president and staff director for the White House Office of Public Liaison. I can't think of a more qualified, decent person to have this job representing our nation at a critical moment as we engage the world. And I wholeheartedly support this nomination and thank you, Mr. Chairman, for letting me speak first. Well, Senator Graham, we very much appreciate you coming to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Thank you. Uh, Senator Markey, for an introduction. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, very much. It is my pleasure to introduce Ambassador Rufus Gifford, a native of the great Commonwealth of Massachusetts, and to welcome his husband, Stephen, his mom, Anne, and his father, Chad, all of whom called the Bay State home. Rufus's two golden retrievers are no doubt watching at home on C-SPAN 2 uh, as we gather. Uh, it's not every day this committee considers a nominee with as eclectic a career as Rufus Gifford. His credits include Hollywood producer, reality TV star show, ambassador, congressional candidate, and cookbook co-author. It was an unconventional route to today. After graduating from Brown University in the mid-1990s, 
he set out for Hollywood to produce the next great American film. He jokes that he wanted to make classics like Chinatown or Ordinary People. Instead, he gave American audiences Daddy Care 2 and Dr. Doolittle 2. <laughs> jokes aside, after his time in Tinseltown, Rufus discovered his true calling in politics and public service. After honing his skills as a, as a staffer on the Kerry campaign in 2004, he met then-Senator Barack Obama in 2007, which began a decade-long professional journey with the 44th president. In 2013, President Obama nominated Rufus to be U.S. ambassador to Denmark, and he was unanimously confirmed by the United States Senate. Shortly after arriving in Copenhagen, Rufus agreed to be the headliner of a reality TV show, I Am the Ambassador. Rufus often reminds people that it is more of a documentary than a reality TV show. But I Am the Ambassador may have lacked the cliffhangers and the drama of the Kardashians, but it did earn him the Danish equivalent of an Emmy. The show's innovative approach to public diplomacy gave Danish viewers, particularly young people, an all-access pass into the life of a U.S. ambassador and the U.S. diplomatic presence in the country. In a country of just 5 million people, 200,000 Danes tuned in each episode to watch as the ambassador toured the country to speak at town halls, meet with migrant children, and visit Greenland to witness the effects of climate change. The series also showed the ambassador advance core U.S. interests, such as lobbying the Danish defense minister to continue his country's steadfast support of the U.S. coalition in Iraq and NATO forces in Afghanistan. One Danish viewer said that it's the type of show you would watch with your mother-in-law, and she would say, oh, he's a lovely man that Rufus Gifford. When it came to a decision of where to exchange marital vows, Rufus and Stephen picked Copenhagen Town Hall, the historic venue where the first legal same-sex civil union in the world was issued in 1989. If only Rufus, as a teenager in the 1980s, could know the acceptance and happiness he would find in 2015 as he married the love of his life, surrounded by family, and friends, ambassadors, and even Crown Prince Frederick and Crown Princess Mary of Denmark, and that President Biden would later place faith in him to serve in a highly public role as the chief of protocol. What a testament to the progress we have made. Rufus's effusive personality makes him the perfect choice for this new role. In Copenhagen, Rufus opened the ambassador's residence to thousands of visitors. As chief of protocol, he will once again play host to foreign dignitaries at the White House and Blair House. His hand will be the first outstretched to greet a prime minister, president, or monarch. The position to which Rufus is nominated is therefore a reflection of our country to the world, the first impression. And what a first impression it will be to echo a Danish fan of his, he's a lovely man, that Rufus Gifford. Congratulations on your nomination, Rufus. I look forward to what I hope will be your swift confirmation. Senator, thank you, Senator Markey, for that introduction. Uh, as you know, our 
committee uh, vets all nominees. Uh, a lot of times all we do is read a lot of articles. This is going to be a much more enjoyable to see your, your video clips as we review your uh, qualifications. Uh, at this point, I'll introduce my colleague, Senator Van Hollen, for an introduction. Well, thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, and Senator Haggerty, Senator Shaheen, members of the committee. Uh, I'm grateful for the opportunity to introduce to the committee the President's nominee to serve as the next permanent representative to the United Nations for Management and Reform, Mr. Christopher Liu. Uh, Chris possesses the leadership, the experience, and the dedication and character required for this role, and I'm confident that he will serve our country well if confirmed. While Chris is now a resident of Virginia, he grew up in Senator Cardin in my state of Maryland. He comes from Rockville, Maryland, where his parents settled after arriving in this country from Taiwan. Chris cut his teeth early on the Thomas S. Wooten High School debating team and then went on to pursue his bachelor's degree at Princeton University. It was during that time that our paths first crossed in the summer of 1986, 35 years ago. Chris was an intern in the office of Maryland Senator Mac Mathias, where I at the time was working as the legislative assistant for defense and arms control. Even back then, Chris stood out for his intellect and passion for service. We got to work together on a range of issues and became friends. From his internship in Senator Mathias's office, he went to Harvard Law School before launching his career in public service, a career that would span two decades in all three branches of government. He first worked as a clerk for Judge Robert Cowan of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit and gained experience here on Capitol Hill as the Deputy Chief Counsel of the House Oversight and Reform Committee. He later became a key aide to then-Senator Barack Obama, a role that would take him from the Capitol to the White House. From 2009 to 2013, he served in the executive branch as the White House Cabinet Secretary and as assistant to the President. And during the first term of the Obama administration, Mr. Liu co-chaired the White House Initiative on Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders. In 2014, Chris was unanimously confirmed by the United States Senate to be Deputy Secretary of the U.S. Department of Labor, a position of key responsibilities overseeing an, ag an agency with 1,700, excuse me, 17,000 employees and a $12 billion budget. He performed his duties with distinction and professionalism. He is currently the Teresa A. Sullivan Practitioner Senior Fellow at the University of Virginia Miller Center. Uh, members of the committee, I've long appreciated and admired Chris's 20-year career in public service and thankful as a citizen for his enduring commitment to serving our country. But despite his very distinguished public service career, Chris never forgot where he started out as an intern here on Capitol Hill. He always credited that first internship with Senator Mathias for giving him his start in public service. And he also placed special emphasis on the fact that Senator Mathias's office paid its interns, even at that time. Without that stipend, without that support, Chris could not have afforded to take that summer internship, which led him on his way. A few years ago, Senator Schatz, Senator Murphy, members of this committee and others uh, 
sponsored and we passed legislation to enable all congressional interns to be paid. And one of the people I was thinking about at that time was Chris Liu. And when he heard about our efforts, he reached out and we did a video supporting that legislation, which passed. Chris's commitment to public service and his desire to open the doors of opportunity to others and future generations are what make him such an exceptional leader. And members of the committee, he is exactly the kind of person we want representing our country in the United Nations. I'm pleased to strongly support his nomination, and I urge the committee to do so as well. Mr. Chairman, if I could ask unanimous consent to also enter into the record two letters of support for Chris Liu. One is from over a dozen Asian American and Pacific Islander advocacy groups. The other is from former high-ranking officials in Republican administrations who worked with Chris at the University of Virginia. Uh, thank you, members of the committee, and I urge you to support this fine nomination. Senator Van Hollen, thank you very much for that introduction. I'm sure that my interns who are watching this hearing appreciate the history of why they are receiving some compensation. <laughs> and uh, let me just also put it, my uh, uh, observations of Senator Mathias, uh, he was an inspiration not only to you and to our nominee, but to many of us in public service in Maryland, an outstanding United States Senator. With that, let me uh, welcome all four of our nominees again, and thank you very much for your willingness uh, to serve during this extremely challenging period in America's history. Uh, we recognize it's not easy, and it's a family uh, commitment, so we thank you and your families for your willingness to serve our nation. Each of the positions that you have been nominated for are critically important to the United States. The chief of protocol, is responsible for advising the president, the vice president, the secretary of state, and other high-ranking officials on matters of national and international protocol, creating an environment for successful diplomacy. We have significant challenges today to succeed in diplomacy. Uh, the Office of Assistant Secretary of State for Education and Cultural Affairs promotes personal, professional, and institutional ties between private citizens and organizations of, in the United States and abroad, and presents U.S. history, society, art, and culture to foreign audiences, international exchange programs, such as the Fulbright, the Humphrey, International Visitor Leadership and Exchange Visitor Program, provides opportunities for individuals from foreign countries to live, study, and work in the United States, and provides similar opportunities for U.S. citizens abroad. The Deputy Administrator of the United States Agency for International Development uh, is one of the key leaders in our USAID uh, family, uh, specifically responsible uh, to oversee policy and programming, including relief, response, and resilience, the Bureau of Development, Democracy, and Innovation, the Bureau for Global Health, which our committee is going to be taking up legislation later this week, and regional bureaus, among others, that are res the responsibility of the deputy administrator. And the representative of the United States at the United Nations for Management and Reform is a critically important position. It's one of the five positions in, with the rank of ambassador at the U.S. Mission to the United Nations in New York. The ambassador directs the mission's management and reform section, which was established to ensure that a senior official at the United States U.N. focuses on issues of management 
and reform within the UN system. So we have uh, key positions and we have uh, qualified nominees and we thank you again for your willingness to serve. And with that, let me turn it over to the ranking member, Senator Haggerty. Senator Cardin, thank you very much. And I want to thank all the nominees for appearing before this committee today. I want to thank you for your service and for your willingness to step up and serve our great nation. First, I'd like to start with the nomination of the Chief of Protocol. This position has the unique responsibility of advancing American foreign policy goals by creating an environment conducive for American diplomacy. As the former U.S. Ambassador to Japan, I recognize that protocol can be incredibly challenging with its own set of complex and intricate issues. It's an essential component of a successful foreign policy, and I look forward to hearing the nominee's views on how he will perform the role of Chief of Protocol. Next, I'd like to turn to the nomination to be the Assistant Secretary of State for Educational and Cultural Affairs. As authoritarian states such as China and Russia look to systematically curb freedom and democracy throughout the world, it's imperative that the United States continue to bolster its people-to-people -people diplomacy. We should look for opportunities to spread the values and ideals of the United States by facilitating various academic, cultural, sports, and professional exchange programs. I'm very interested to hear how the nominee intends to advance U.S. foreign policy objectives through educational and cultural programs. I'd like to turn to the nomination to be Deputy Administrator for Policy and Programming at USAID. We know that thoughtfully targeted and designed foreign assistance can help advance the national security, the economic security, and the humanitarian interest of the United States. This means that ensuring resources that are properly aligned with the broader strategic objectives of the United States will be implemented properly. I look forward to hearing from the nominee on this matter. And now I'd like to turn to the nominee to be representative to the United Nations for UN management and reform. This is a position that requires keen judgment and an even temperament. As authoritarian states look for ways to increase their influence in the United Nations, the United States will need to exercise its leverage, including its administrative and budgetary leverage, to protect the integrity of the United Nations. At the same time, the United States should look for support from allies and its partners to shoulder the financial burden of maintaining and funding the United Nations. As these discussions and negotiations over the administrative and budgetary aspects of the UN continue, it will be critical for the representative of the United States to maintain a strong position to ensure that the United Nations is properly and efficiently managed. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you very much, Senator Haggerty. We'll now proceed uh, to our nominees. Uh, your entire statement will be made part of our record without objection the two letters of support mentioned by Senator Van Hollen will also be made part of our record. Uh, at this time, let me introduce, uh, let me recognize uh, Mr. Ambassador Gifford, who was previously introduced by Senator Markey. Uh, <clears throat> thank you, Mr. Chairman, uh, members of the committee for the opportunity to appear before you today, and thank you, Senator Markey, for the very kind introduction. Eight years ago, almost to the day, I sat grateful and humbled before this distinguished committee as President Obama's nominee, nominee to be ambassador to the Kingdom of Denmark. Today, I sit before you, doubly humbled and grateful, to be nominated by President Biden to once again serve the country I love. If confirmed as President Biden's nominee for Chief of Protocol for the United States, I am eager to showcase the best of America and all of America while reaching out to our friends, allies, and partners throughout the world. 
I also wish to extend gratitude to Secretary of State Antony Blinken. If confirmed, I look forward to working with the Secretary and the over 50,000 State Department employees made up of civil and foreign service professionals, locally engaged staff, eligible family members, and contractors to continue bringing America back to the table. I am joined here today by my veterinarian husband, Dr. Stephen DeVincent, who was a fellow at the State Department when we first met, and who is joining me for the second time on this great journey. And I'm joined by mom, my mom and dad, uh, Ann and Chad Gifford. I want to thank all three of them for supporting me today. Today, in these unprecedented times, traditional diplomacy, like so much else in our great country, has been challenged by COVID-19. However, the United States has remained strong and resilient through the pandemic and has proven that we can work in new and creative ways. In Denmark, I led our amazing team of Americans and locally engaged staff to strengthen our bilateral relationship and modernize diplomacy while fully embracing the fact that diplomacy starts and ends with human relationships, face-to-face -face interactions, shaking hands, and breaking through our differences. These are the fundamental ways to carry out the art of protocol, but I also believe that we now have the ability to leverage new tools and technology to build and strengthen our relationships at home and abroad. We also have a responsibility to model and represent America's diversity by being more inclusive and equitable at every opportunity. This can begin from the moment protocol engages with each and every visiting delegation. If confirmed, I pledge to support the administration's foreign policy goals and reach new audiences using both traditional and modern diplomatic methods of engagement. To do that, I believe I must fully invest in the people who have been at the core of the Office of Protocol for years, across administrations, empowering them and building a true team, one with clarity of mission to work together and advance American foreign policy interests. Today, the Office of the Chief of Protocol has seven divisions which focus on specific elements specific to protocol diplomacy. The Blair House, the presidential guest house, has hosted official delegations since it was sold to the US government in the mid-1900s. The Blair House operates similar to a boutique hotel and can serve as a representational venue or provide contingent lodging. The Ceremonials Division executes events for both the White House and the Secretary of State involving the diplomatic corps and visiting high-level officials, as well as presidential inaugurations, state funerals, and other ceremonies. Ceremonials officers advise on flag etiquette, forms of address, and event logistics. Diplomatic Affairs is responsible for maintaining the diplomatic core order of precedence and the publication of the foreign diplomatic list. It coordinates the accreditation of bilateral chiefs of mission, heads of delegation, chargé d'affaires, and deputy chief of chiefs of mission and their dependents. It directs the agreement process for new bilateral chiefs of mission and heads of delegation, including arrivals and presentations of credentials to the president at the White House. Diplomatic Partnership, a revived division, is responsible for outreach to the diplomatic corps domestically and will engage audiences both through social media and other forums. It has several, several programs, including Experience America, State of the Administration, Issues Roundtables, and the American Heritage Series. Major Events is responsible for planning and executing multilateral summits, major conferences, and other large-scale events. Most recently, Major Events Division carried out the largest virtual summit, virtual official event, with the uh, April 2021 Leaders Summit on Climate, reaching out to 40 world leaders. The Visits Division assists and accompanies presidential delegations abroad. 
It works closely with other federal agencies and takes a role in the logistical planning of bilateral meetings with the President, First Lady, Vice President, and Secretary of State, as well as officials and state visits and large-scale international meetings and summits. Finally, the management division keeps all the other divisions running, making sure they have all the needed resources. If confirmed as the chief of protocol, I pledge to lead the team of experienced protocol staff to showcase the very best America has to offer. Mr. Chairman and members of the committee, thank you again for the, uh, for the opportunity to appear before you today and for your consideration of my nomination. If confirmed, I look forward to serving the United States and wor working with Congress to help advance our foreign policy. I look forward to your questions. Uh, thank you, Ambassador Gifford. We'll now hear from Ms. Satterfield, who was previously introduced by Senator Graham. Sorry. <laughs> I'd like to thank Senator Graham for his introduction, Chairman Cardin, Ranking Member Haggerty, and members of the committee. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to appear before you today as President Biden's nominee to be Assistant Secretary of the Bureau of Educational and Cultural Affairs. I'm honored to be considered by the Senate for this important position and grateful to President Biden and Secretary Blinken for the confidence that they have placed in me. I would like to thank my family, my husband Patrick, our sons Jack and Connor, and all of my supportive extended family, friends, and colleagues. I've worked in various capacities in the consequential field of international engagement for over a decade and dedicated the majority of my almost 30-year career to public service. If confirmed, it would be the honor of a lifetime to lead a bureau whose mission is to increase mutual understanding between the people of the United States and people around the world through educational, professional, and cultural exchanges. My experience has prepared me to carry on the proud tradition of excellence at the Bureau. As president of Meridian International Center, I've led efforts to connect leaders through cultural exchange and collaboration, driving solutions to shared global challenges and fostering international cooperation for the past six years. I'm a passionate champion for advancing U.S. policy priorities through people-to-people -people exchanges. Having previously served in ECA as Deputy Assistant Secretary and Acting Assistant Secretary, I know these programs of engagement are an integral part of our diplomacy, which President Biden has placed at the center of U.S. foreign policy. And I hold the many dedicated professionals who make these programs successful in the highest regard. Public diplomacy is a strategy, and like foreign policy professionals, public diplomacy practitioners practitioners must survey the global terrain to ascertain America's natural competitive advantages in meeting threats and challenges. Those advantages are numerous. The United States has the highest quality, most open and diverse system of higher education in the world. We are and must remain the destination of choice for the best and brightest students. We can welcome international students and protect our national interests. The United States economy is infused with an entrepreneurial spirit that attracts, inspires, and innovates. American culture is the most pervasive and influential culture in the world. English is the language of the world, opening doors and minds. American values are the foundation of a world that rejects violence and extremism and that embraces liberty, individual dignity, and democracy. 
ECA exchanges are purposefully designed to leverage all of those inherent strengths of our country. Exchanges have an unparalleled ability to convey and share the American experience, ultimately making our country more secure and globally competitive. As set forth in the Interim National Security Strategic Guidance, we are engaged in a global competition for influence and power with authoritarian states such as Russia and China. To meet this current challenge, our most powerful assets remain those that have guided and strengthened our nation since the beginning, our democratic principles. If confirmed, I will thoughtfully evaluate conditions for scaling up in-person exchanges prioritizing health, safety, and welfare, and build on lessons learned from ECA's successful virtual programs. I will ensure ECA programs represent, promote, and support equity, diversity, and inclusion, while also advancing those principles within the workforce. I will demonstrate responsible stewardship of taxpayer dollars by measuring and evaluating program performance through a data-driven approach. As Secretary Blinken stated, among the best investments we make are in our exchange programs. I will continue ECA activities that benefit the American people and the U.S. economy, contributing directly to local economies and fostering business and educational opportunities. And I will promote those opportunities to U.S. citizens. I will build on ECA's robust global alumni network. Successful exchange programs are not one-and-done events but rather an initial investment in foreign audiences and a community of potential foreign policy allies. One in three current world leaders are part of the over 1.5 million alumni of ECA exchanges. If confirmed, I will aim to strengthen people-to-people -people ties and advance our country's foreign policy goals under the leadership of Secretary Blinken and in consultation with Congress. Thank you, and I look forward to your questions. Uh, thank you very much for your testimony. We'll now hear from the nominee, uh, President Biden's nominee for Deputy Administrator for Policy and Programming at USAID, Ambassador Is Isabel Coleman, who is a foreign policy and global development expert with more than 25 years of experience working in government, the private sector, and nonprofits. Most recently, she served on the Biden transition team leading the review of the U.S. mission in the United Nations to the United Nations. From 2014 to 2017, she was the U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations for Management, Reform, and Special Political Affairs. During this time, she represented the United States in the U.N. General Assembly on budgetary matters and the U.N. Security Council on Africa and peacekeeping issues. From 2018 to 2020, she was the Chief Operating Officer of Give Directly, an international nonprofit a group that dealt with poverty by providing unconditional cash transfers to the extreme poor. It's a pleasure to have Ambassador Coleman before us. Thank you, Chairman Cardin and Ranking Member Haggerty and distinguished members of the committee. I am honored to appear before you as President Biden's nominee to be Deputy Administrator for Policy and Programming at USAID. I'm grateful to President Biden and Administrator Power for their trust in me at this important moment. I would also like to thank the SFRC staff who have so strongly supported the mission of USAID and have been stalwart partners to the agency. I wouldn't be appearing before you today without the love and support of my family who have encouraged me every step. 
my wonderful husband, Struan, who's here with us today, and my terrific children, Cullen, Struan, Julian, Josie, and Adrian, my siblings, Caroline, Richard, and Douglas, and my loving parents, Michael and Edie, and my mother-in-law, Ginny, I thank you all. Over the past 20 years, my work as a writer, diplomat, and NGO leader has taken me to troubled spots around the world, from Afghanistan and Yemen to South Sudan and Eastern Congo. I've had the privilege of visiting more than a dozen USAID missions, and I've seen up close the incredible work of USAID staff and partners, from programs training young women to provide life-saving maternal care in rural Afghan villages, to democracy programs helping young people understand their newfound political rights in Tunisia. These and other American investments not only improve the lives of millions, but also advance our own interests. We at home are more secure and more prosperous when democracy and economic opportunities expand for others around the world. Today, the work of USAID is more important than ever. COVID-19 continues to ravage the world's most vulnerable populations. The pandemic's secondary effects, including loss of incomes, food insecurity, and widespread school closings, are exacting a steep toll in many communities. Untethered corruption is destabilizing countries around the world, and conflict is now driving more than 80% of humanitarian needs. My career has helped prepare me to lead the agency to confront the challenges facing our global development efforts at this time. I've written extensively about economic reform and democratization, and I'm probably best known for my decades-long work to underscore the advantages of investing in women and girls globally. My years in the private sector have helped me to hone my management skills. My time as a diplomat at the UN exposed me to the benefits and challenges of multilateralism and instilled in me the imperative of leveraging our resources to marshal those of other countries. And as an NGO leader working across Africa, I gained firsthand appreciation for the acute challenges facing USAID partners in delivering assistance to those devastated by conflict and humanitarian disasters. If confirmed, I will bring these experiences to bear at USAID to ensure that our programming continues to be more innovative and effective, that it is aligned to administration and congressional priorities, and to mobilize other governments, international organizations, and the private sector to be force multipliers of our work. I will also lead on ensuring a culture of diversity, equity, and inclusion across the agency. Meeting today's demands from helping partner countries adapt to climate change to countering democratic backsliding depends on finding innovative ways to do more with less. To that end, I will strive to ensure that the agency is breaking down programmatic silos to realize the multiplier effect of our work across bureaus and sectors. I am clear-eyed about the competitive challenges posed by China, Russia, and other authoritarian regimes, and I will make sure that USAID is deploying the best of America, including technical expertise, financing, corporate partnerships, and innovation alongside our generous grants to provide an alternative to predatory development models that breed and exacerbate corruption. If confirmed, I pledge to work with you and your colleagues to ensure that U.S. taxpayer dollars are being deployed effectively to advance American foreign policy interests while doing the most good for the most people. I will bring to my role the same commitment to transparency, bipartisanship, and collaboration with this committee that I brought to my prior role in government. I thank you again for this opportunity to appear before you 
and I look forward to answering your questions. Uh, thank you very much uh, for your, your comments. We'll now turn uh, to the honorable, honorable Christopher Liu, who was previously introduced by Senator Van Hollen. Chairman Cardin, Ranking Member Haggerty, and members of the committee, it is an honor to appear today. I would like to thank President Biden, Secretary Blinken, and Ambassador Thomas Greenfield for their confidence in me. I am grateful to Senator Van Hollen for his kind words and his tireless efforts to create opportunities for future public servants. And most importantly, I would like to thank my wife, Katie Thompson, who is here today for her steadfast support. I am the proud son of immigrants who came to this country more than 60 years ago to start a new life. Government service is literally in my blood. My father, who was a civilian employee at the Department of Defense, believed that working for the federal government was the best way to repay the country that had been so good to him. I have tried to follow my father's example during my 20 years of federal service, where I have focused on improving how government addresses the needs of the American people. As Deputy Chief Counsel of the House Oversight Committee, I conducted investigations to improve the effectiveness of federal programs. During my time as legislative director for then Senator Obama, we worked with former Senator Tom Coburn to pass legislation to improve the transparency of federal spending and reduce no-bid contracts. As White House Cabinet Secretary, I coordinated dozens of federal agencies to ensure the effective delivery of services during the Great Recession. And at the Department of Labor, I was the chief operating officer of a $12 billion agency with 17,000 employees, and I oversaw the budget, personnel, procurement, and IT functions. If confirmed, I look forward to applying my experience to this critical position representing the United States at the UN. Since its founding, the United Nations has been an indispensable force for advancing peace and security, and improving the lives of the world's most vulnerable people. The events of the past year have highlighted how interconnected our world is and how complex problems often can only be addressed in collaboration with other countries. A well-managed UN is in the best interest of the United States. It is also a smart investment for the American people who are the largest funders of the UN budget. Despite its many successes, the UN has struggled at times to live up to its founding ideals. In order to address the complex issues of the 21st century, the UN needs to operate more like a 21st century organization. If confirmed, I will push for greater transparency and accountability in how the UN spends its funds, makes its decisions, and operates its programs. Waste, fraud, and abuse should be rooted out and eliminated. Anti-Israel bias must be rejected wherever it exists. Sexual exploitation and abuse by UN peacekeepers and staff must end. And constant vigilance is needed towards countries like China and Russia that seek to undermine the UN and the rules-based international order. I am well aware of the challenges of driving change in an organization where the United States is just one of 193 members. However, as Ambassador Thomas Greenfield told this committee in January, we must have the courage to insist on reforms that make the UN efficient and effective and the persistence to see the reforms through. Since its founding, the UN has endured and prospered because of American leadership. If confirmed, 
I look forward to utilizing my two decades of federal management experience to ensure that the United Nations moves closer to reaching its full potential. Thank you for considering me for this position. I look forward to answering your questions. And, and thank you for, for your uh, testimony. Uh, the committee has uh, four standard questions that we ask all nominees. I, I will go down the line, ask if you could answer yes, yes or no to these questions for the record. Do you agree to appear before this committee and make officials from your office available to the committee and designated staff when invited? Yes. Yes. Yes, I do. Yes. You can't nod. I have to respond by. Yes, I do. Thank you. Do you commit to keep this committee fully and currently informed about the activities under your purview? Yes. Yes. Yes, I do. Yes. Do you commit to engaging in meaningful consultation while policies are being developed, not just providing notification after the fact? Yes. 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 Do you commit to promptly responding to requests for briefings and information requested by the committee and its designated staff? Yes. 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 Thank you. Senator Shaheen. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, and congratulations to each of you on your nominations. I look forward to working with you, and I'm sure the rest of the committee feels the same way. Um, Ambassador Coleman, I would like to begin with you um, because one of the things you said in your opening statement, and you talked a little bit about this in your written testimony, is that you're going to strive to ensure the agency is breaking down silos to realize the multiplier effect of work across bureaus and sectors. And in your opening statement, you talked about the importance of investing in women and girls, which I am a big proponent of. Can you talk a little bit about how you could fully integrate um, women and girls across all aspects of USAID? Thank you, Senator Shaheen, for that question um, on a topic near and dear to my heart. Um, Investing in women and girls cannot be a sideshow, an afterthought. It, it really has to be the main event. There is so much compelling evidence today that shows that investing in women and girls create uh, positive um, cycles for countries, that it improves not only the live, their own lives, the lives of their families, of their communities, but it um, leads to more prosperous countries and, and the world as a whole. Um, so. When we look at efforts on food security, humanitarian assistance, global health, um, whatever it is that USAID is doing, climate change and resilience, women and girls have to be front and center. They're often the most vulnerable in their communities um, and ones who, who need uh, to make sure that they are receiving attention. And we know that when efforts and programming is targeted to women and girls, the spillover effects for the whole family are, are uh, tremendous. Well, thank you. I assume we can um, feel, rest assured that you will commit to making that a priority. In it your will new, absolutely be one confirmed. of my priorities. Thank, thank you. you. Um, Ms. Satterfield, I totally agree with your comment about cultural exchanges being an initial investment in our foreign allies, and it is the best way for people around the world to learn about the United States and for Americans to learn about others around the world. Um, but one of the challenges that we have had in New Hampshire is with the J-1 visa program. I think it's a terrific program 
And we have a lot of employers who not only appreciate the ability to learn from the foreign visitors, but who also are able to give them jobs. And that's been an important aspect of our seasonal economy in New Hampshire with tourism. So can you talk about how you would work if confirmed with American businesses to address issues that we've had with the J-1 visa program over the last year so that we're not facing a winter and a spring next year where we have these same problems where young people are not able to get to the United States because we have embassies closed down and we can't do the work to ensure that they can arrive in the United States. Uh, thank you, Senator. Um, and I agree that the J-1 visa program, now called Bridge USA, is a valuable foreign policy tool and an important public diplomacy program specifically to communities all across the country. I've seen recent reports about shortage of international um, visitors in camps that um, aren't being able to continue because of the shortage. And I feel for those parents and families and also those small businesses that are affected. The Bridge USA program is poised to be stronger than ever. They've, there have been significant improvements in the program over the last couple of years. And now those alumni are included as part of all of the State Department alumni in continuing engagement after they return home. So your point about a critical audience is key. If I'm confirmed, I will work very closely with consular affairs to prioritize the J-1 visitors and to communicate with sponsors in communities about the various ways that we can ensure that these participants are able to come to the United States as soon as possible. Well, thank you. As we continue to struggle with COVID, uh, both here in the United States and around the world, will you also commit to working with the state to develop a plan for how we will address this if we continue to have embassies closed around the world? Yes, Senator, I will. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, thank you, Senator Shaheen. I just reinforce what Senator Shaheen said on the, on the J-1s. I think uh, many parts of our country depended upon the J-1s, but it also the value of the exchange as well as the need in our country was clearly missed during COVID-19. Senator Haggerty. There we go. Thank you. Chairman Cardin, I just want to thank you for your remarks. And, and Senator Shaheen, the J-1 issue is also a big issue in my state as well. And I echo your concern and appreciate the fact that, Ms. Satterfield, you, we will be willing to work with us on this if confirmed. Uh, if I could first turn to Ambassador Gifford. Chief of Protocol plays a critical diplomatic role. You'll be charged with advising not only on national but international diplomatic protocols. Our nation will rely upon you. As the former United States Ambassador to Japan, I understand how difficult sometimes the nuances of diplomatic protocol can be. And it, it will be requiring you to have very keen judgment as you execute your duties if you're confirmed. Also, I want to remind you that if confirmed, you'll be representing all Americans. And I hope that you'll keep that in mind. And with that in mind, I'd like to understand your views, Ambassador, on the importance of bipartisanship in the execution and implementation of U.S. foreign policy and whether you'll commit to work with me and the other members of this committee to make sure 
that bipartisan representation is, is critically represented in all of our diplomatic protocol issues. Uh, thank you, Senator. Uh, the answer to that is absolutely 100% as someone like you who has served overseas and has seen the, the real beauty and strength and power of American, um, American diplomacy globally. As far as I'm concerned, partisan politics has absolutely no place uh, at the State Department. Uh, I, what was it, that uh, politics famously stops at the water's edge. Um, and that, of course, uh, when we're living and working uh, at the State Department, that holds true as well. The way I think about this is when we, if I am confirmed, and I am privileged enough to take that oath of office, I pledge to serve, protect, defend the Constitution of the United States. I don't, uh, no president, no ideology, certainly no political party. Um, and for me, I think I have a record to back that up uh, because that is what I did from 2013 until, uh, until I left uh, my post in 2017. And I commit to you wholeheartedly to do that once again if I'm confirmed in this position. I appreciate that, Ambassador. I've been very frustrated myself seeing former diplomats come back and behave in a partisan manner. And I think that that needs to be parked. And just as you say, you'll be representing all of us. And I appreciate your wholehearted focus on that. Ambassador Coleman, if I could turn to you, please. Um, I've enjoyed our opportunity to discuss uh, matters related to the charter that uh, you're, you're looking to undertake. I'd like to talk with you about two areas, China and Afghanistan. Uh, USAID funds uh, a, a, a tremendous amount of effort to help ethnic Tibetans to maintain their culture, uh, to maintain their entrepreneurial presence. It's this type of program that I wholeheartedly support. And I'd love to hear your views on how you would look at continuing USAID's support for other groups that may be in some way uh, oppressed or in, and damaged in some manner by China's malign behavior. Thank you, Senator Haggerty, for that question. And I thank you for your time last week. Uh, that we were able to spend to get to know each other a bit. Um, it's a very important question. We have seen an increasing authoritarian turn in China and an erosion of human rights in that country. You mentioned the Tibetans, but of course, um, the situation with the Uyghurs is, um, is very dire too. Um, USAID is um, doing what it can to support uh, the Uyghur people, um, particularly those who are um, taking an activist role um, and those who have been um, oppressed by the country. Um, some of them and, uh, have, have left the country and uh, USAID is taking efforts across China um, to uh, uh, ensure um, human rights programming um, where it can, but often uh, outside the country. I hope we can continue this conversation, particularly with the thought of how we can prevent the CCP from diverting or in some way frustrating those efforts. I'll look forward to having those conversations with you should you be confirmed. I look uh, forward to it. With respect to Afghanistan, um, I see a very challenging role there because we're making commitments to continue USAID, but the Taliban has taken over half of the districts there, putting our presence there under tremendous pressure. Have you had the opportunity to think about how you will deploy USAID uh, resources under the current conditions in Afghanistan, particularly as you see them trending? Thank you, Senator, for that question, too. I have, um, I have spent a bit of time in Afghanistan. I've been there maybe half a dozen times over the past 20 years and um, have seen some very good work that USAID has done there. And I recognize that um, the situation is, is very fragile right now and, and rapidly changing. Um, 
I think USAID has made some strong gains in Afghanistan and will do what it can, both through our own efforts on the ground, um, but also working through partners there, um, local partners, um, international NGOs, and uh, UN agencies to continue some of the good work that we have done. But if confirmed, um, I will certainly make Afghanistan a priority and to do contingency planning as the situation evolves. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Senator Van Hollen. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman, and congratulations to all of you on your nominations. Uh, Ms. Satterfield, if I could begin with you, and <clears throat> thank you for the work you've done, done at the Meridian House. Um, let me um, pick up on that work and something I heard you say, which is that you believe that uh, educational and exchange programs uh, do play an important role uh, in our foreign policy. I agree with you. Uh, if you look at the previous administration, even before the pandemic hit, there was a big drop-off uh, in the number of students coming to the United States. Uh, in the very first year of the previous administration, international student enrollment in U.S. universities declined by 6.6% uh, in the first academic year. Uh, we don't need to go into all the reasons for that, but my question to you, is it your goal uh, to restore a more robust enrollment of foreign students in the United States and to reinvigorate our exchange programs. Um, thank you, Senator, for that question and bringing up this incredibly important point. The United States remains the number one destination for hosting international students, even though the numbers have dropped. Also, there's growing competition from other countries to recruit students to come there to study. and. Um, we cannot rest on our laurels, is absolutely my intent to um, continue to find ways to message to international students. We need strong outreach with accurate and comprehensive information. Frankly, like the statement that was put out yesterday by the State Department, a joint statement by the State Department and the Department of Education, um, listing the ways that international students can come to the United States to U.S. universities and colleges and um, participate in a way. We can also network through Education USA, which is ECA's um, educational advising arm, and through our American spaces, which are in over 600 places around the world. I absolutely commit, if confirmed, to making that a priority. Well, terrific, because um, as you say, we have seen a, a drop-off in the number of enrollments uh, even before the pandemic, and obviously we need to take into account health issues. But uh, as you mentioned, we're seeing incredible competition around the world. Other countries see it as in their interest uh, to attract students, um, and we have a whole lot to offer and also a window into you know, some of the values that uh, form our country in foreign policy, freedom of speech and other things. So I really hope and I'm pleased that you're gonna make that a priority. I also just wanna to mention to you that there's a very good exchange uh, program with young African uh, leaders, the Young African Leaders Initiative, YALI, you're probably familiar with it. Um, I chair the Africa subcommittee here and Senator Rounds is the ranking member and we intend uh, shortly to introduce legislation uh, to codify uh, that program. My Congresswoman Bass has introduced uh, and passed that on the House and look forward to working with you. Hope I'll have your commitment to work with us on that. Absolutely, thank you, Senator. Thank you. Um, Ambassador Coleman, um, if I could, well, first let me start with Sudan. Um, I had a chance to visit Sudan uh, 
a little while back uh, with Senator Coons, and as you know, um, the, the United States through AID has committed $700 million uh, to support the transition from dictatorship uh, to democracy. This committee is currently reviewing some of the rough drafts of the proposal. Um, we need to get it done quickly, in my view. Um, are you familiar with that proposal, and uh, do you commit to working with this committee to make sure that we implement it fully? Uh, thank you, Senator, for um, bringing up Sudan. It's one of the few bright spots, actually, on the horizon um, as it makes its transition from military rule to civilian uh, governance. And uh, if confirmed, I will absolutely make uh, Sudan one of my priorities. I'm familiar with the legislation. I don't know the details of it, but um, I do understand that $700 million has been uh, uh, committed and uh, investments in helping the civilian government understand how to govern um, and uh, building institutional capacity and working with civil society so uh, that they can strengthen that, that democratic uh, governance process there is, is critically important. Thank you. Thank you. And, and my, my last question relates to what Senator Haggerty uh, brought up with respect to Afghanistan. Um, I don't know if you've seen the movie uh, Charlie Wilson's War, uh, but for those of you who haven't, I recommend it to you. It, um, it's a story about a, a House member who was successful in getting all of his colleagues to support uh, the purchase of Stinger missiles uh, to provide to the Mujahideen, which did help drive the Soviets out of Afghanistan. But the very end of the movie is a, is a scene of him asking his colleagues to support funding for education and schools in Afghanistan, and he was unsuccessful at doing that. Uh, we know what happened after the Soviet, uh, we pushed the Soviets out and we sort of, you know, left the scene and the Taliban filled the vacuum and they, they gave, uh, they of course gave sanctuary to Al-Qaeda. So uh, I, I, two questions. One is what is AID's vision for its continued participation in Afghanistan? Number two, how are you going to navigate the security situation there? Thank you, Senator, for the question. Um, you know, USAID, I, I understand, is um, looking at the situation very closely in Afghanistan, and as I said earlier, doing contingency planning. It's um, almost impossible to know what will happen at this point and, and, and any time frame, but um, it has invested $22 billion in that country over the past 20 years and have some remarkable gains to show for it in terms of uh, significant declines in maternal mortality, uh, more girls in school than ever before in that country's history, um, and uh, seeking ways to make sure that those gains are, are not lost, that in fact that they're sustained, uh, whether it's through direct interventions or working through partners on the ground, um, uh, through the multilateral system and the UN agencies. Um, but also recognizing the possibility for, for refugee flows and being ready for that. Well, I think um, we all have our hands full uh, there with respect to what will unfold, but I um, appreciate your, um, your, your determination to stay engaged, uh, security allowing. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Kane. Mr. Chair and Ranking Member Haggerty, thank you, and congratulations to the panel. This is a very highly qualified panel. Ambassador Gifford, it's good to see you again, and I want to start with you. Um, I would have asked exactly the question that Senator Haggerty did, looking at the, a background of a Rufus Gifford that I didn't know and seeing so much political activity, I would have asked, can you, uh, you know, take an oath and be even-handed in your work? 
I've had the virtue of working with Rufus significantly in the past. And I couldn't see this about everybody I've worked with in a political capacity, but I can say it about Rufus Gifford, that he is going to be very, very even-handed in his approach to the job, uh, which is what he did when he was ambassador to Denmark. Your success there was very, very notable. Let me ask you this, um, Ambassador Gifford. You, you talked about the many external-facing roles of the uh, protocol chief, but there's also this internal-facing role. You talked about the management division within the office. In their past, there have been some controversies about internal management issues. Um, tell us what you would do should you be confirmed to foster a very professional and inclusive uh, and even-handed environment in the office. Yeah, thank you, Senator. And this is a this is an issue that's near and dear to my heart. I am certainly aware uh, of the ongoing challenges. There are issues with morale, et cetera. And listen, I think that uh, from a management standpoint, um, and I think this is the important, one point important thing to note here is that service overseas, understanding the culture of the State Department, understand the expertise that I am walking into uh, if I am confirmed for this job is, is wh where you start, I think. Uh, general respect for the civil servants who've been doing this work for years, uh, understanding uh, that if I'm confirmed in this position that I have a lot to learn still, uh, that they're the career professionals and I'm coming in to lead, of course, uh, but I still, but but I, I need to be building that team and fostering uh, that sense uh, that's uh, uh, that sense of just that word team, um, and and I have to say that over the with the various teams that I've managed, roughly the same size, diverse uh, diverse staffs in a variety of different ways. Um, I like to say that I, I, I at the beginning of any job like this, I take the bull by the horns and um, um, and ensure that uh, we change the tone and that we create an environment that is equitable, diverse, um, and empowering. Uh, because on, honestly, if we're going to accomplish the mission, that's what we got to do. That's where we got to start. Excellent. Thank you for that. Um, Ms. Hatterfield, uh, your bureau is very important, and it's very important to Virginia because we have a, a significant number of people who work um, on programs. For example, in the Fulbright, we had 53 Virginians uh, doing Fulbrights during 20 and 21 Peace Corps, 114 Virginians in the 2020 Peace Corps program. We've also hosted critical programs, including the Young African Leaders Conference that Senator um, Ben Holland asked you about at UVA in 2014 and at Virginia Commonwealth University in 2016. So there's a lot I'd like you to ask, but I'm just gonna ask you about this. Talk to us about the challenges of the Fulbright program during a time of COVID and how you intend to keep this program vibrant and active even as State Department is issuing new guidance and other agencies are issuing new guidance every day about uh, travel restrictions that may need to be continued with some of the nations where we have Fulbright scholars. Thank you, Senator. Um, it, it is important to continue to um, provide ways that we can connect with people around the world and Americans, particularly through Fulbright. It happens to be the 75th anniversary of that program this year, and it is a strong and vibrant way that we reach out to other communities across the world. I remember recently I was um, speaking with some college students and talking about the role, if I'm confirmed, that I'll play in the United States. And as soon as I mentioned Fulbright, their eyes lit up. It has a, it resonates, um, not only here in the United States, but in all places around the world. The pandemic has created a challenge for doing in-person programming, but 
I think that with um, a hope that we'll be able to continue in-person in -person programs where possible and continuing Fulbright and other public diplomacy programs will be critical. And if I'm confirmed, I'll look forward to determining ways we can do that safely. Excellent. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to include Ambassador Coleman and Mr. Liu in a, in a last comment or question. So, Mr. Liu, you're a wonderful public servant. Since you are nominated for a position that Ambassador Coleman has had, I hope you guys have lunch right after this and let her give you a lot of good advice about how to do it. Um, Ambassador Coleman, here's something I'm just interested in. I just want to put it on your radar screen. There's a program at um, USAID called the New Partnerships Initiative, which is designed to invest in NGOs, small NGOs and local partners uh, in the USAID humanitarian uh, contracting space. There was a foreign policy article uh, in May just recently that criticized USAID for distributing the NPI awards largely through large contractors, kind of undercutting the whole goal of the program, which is to focus on small contractors and local partners. Senators Ruby and I are going to introduce a bill um, this week uh, called the New Partners, New Partnerships Initiative Authorization Act to really try to make sure that we are building capacity among creative, innovative new partners and, and, and not just legacy partners who do great work, but we want to create more innovation and more opportunity. And I hope uh, that will be an area that you'll focus on should you be confirmed. And we look forward to working with you on that. Ambassador Coleman, if I might start with a question in regards to how you intend to set priorities within USAID. And I mentioned this with President Biden making it clear that our foreign policy is going to be wrapped in our values, something that I think every member of this committee strongly supports. He's also indicated that corruption is a core national security concern. If you look at what the trends are around the world, decline of democratic states, a rise of corruption in many countries, including some of our allies, where we see a rise in corruption, good governance and the role USAID plays in anti-corruption becomes critically important. Later this week, our committee will be considering legislation to expand our role and USAID's role in global health, something we desperately need to do. My question is, we have a limited amount of resources today under USAID that's devoted to good governance and anti-corruption. How do you intend to prioritize good governance and anti-corruption to protect and expand the capacity of USAID to deal with this critical issue for our country? Thank you, Senator Cardin, for that, that terrific question. Um, and also, let me just start by thanking you for your leadership on this issue, whether it's the Global Magnitsky Act or um, the Combating Global Corruption Act. You've truly shown uh, tremendous leadership uh, on bringing uh, corruption to the forefront of what needs to be a, a whole-of-government approach to combating this scourge around the world, so thank you. Um, if confirmed, uh, I know that corruption and anti-corruption efforts will be very central to a whole range of efforts. Um, not only has President Biden made this one of his priorities, but Administrator Power has also created an anti-corruption task force and is really focused on this issue um, because it, it is such um, uh, a challenging topic uh, in so many parts of the world. Um, and, you know, if confirmed, I would really uh, dig into the programs that exist, uh, look at what has been effective, um, look at 
uh, new uh, areas that we could invest more in, um, but um, really make this something that's mainstreamed throughout uh, all of our work that we're doing because it is so important. I would just underscore that one of the areas that we really need to strengthen is the capacity of our embassies to deal with understanding the, the problems in their country and how we can best interact to deal with anti-corruption measures. So one of the areas that could help USAID if there was stronger capacity within missions to be able to provide that type of knowledge and help. I just urge you to make that part of your priority selections to strengthen the State Department's ability to deal with anti-corruption. Thank you, Senator. If, if confirmed, I, I will absolutely work with my State Department colleagues on that. Thank you. Mr. Liu, I, I want to talk about a serious issue we've had at the United Nations. Uh, we have uh, UN peacekeepers, and as part of the way that the administrative issues are handled, there are a lot of countries that lobby to become peacekeepers. And yet we've seen sexual exploitations uh, too often in regards to peacekeepers. So I, I want to get uh, your um, uh, re, uh, commitment and your uh, response to how you will use your position at the United Nations to make sure that we protect the safety of the people on which the United Nations is operating with peacekeepers and that safety will be the top concern, not just the politics of which countries are selected for peacekeeping. Senator, thank you for that question. The United States has a zero tolerance policy when it comes to sexual exploitation and abuse. There have been improvements, I understand, in recent years under the Secretary General's leadership in terms of preventing sexual exploitation and abuse, increasing transparency of allegations, um, suspending troops uh, engaged in wrongdoing, uh, often repatriating them and sometimes even withholding payments. All of that being said, far more needs to be done. Uh, and the progress that has been made in recent years, including under Ambassador Coleman's leadership, happens when the U.S. is actively engaged in the United Nations. Um, so you have my commitment, Senator, that if confirmed, uh, this will be a top priority of mine, and I know it is of Ambassador Thomas Greenfield as well. Thank you. Uh, uh, Ambassador Gifford, I, I want to ask you about diplomatic immunity. It's something that's absolutely essential for diplomats to be able to carry out their responsibilities that we know the pressure to develop, particularly when there's a particular incident. So how do you intend to provide guidance in regards to U.S. position globally on defending uh, diplomatic immunity? Well, I think, uh, thank you for the question, Senator, and it is, it is critically important. I think one of the roles of the chief of protocol here is um, understanding that when issues of, of diplomatic immunity arise, and they will inevitably arise, um, that we have to manage uh, what could become significant frictions uh, in a bilateral relationship. And, and how do you do that? Um, it, this is so much for me about communication, uh, that it, it, we are not policymakers in the chief of protocol, if I'm confirmed. So what, we, what, what I think needs to be prioritized is heightened communication between whatever bureau, understanding the issue uh, that has come up, um, and dealing with it collectively. And I think in an issue like this, involving incredibly sensitive issues, uh, that's got to be prioritized above and beyond all else. Senator Markey. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman, very much. Uh, Ms. Satterfield, your position at the Bureau of Educational and Cultural Affairs 
will allow you to establish import restrictions on cultural goods from foreign countries through the authorization of memorandums of understanding. Cultural property MOUs have the power to impact the cultural heritage of ethnic and religious minority populations, which the United States should aim to protect. If confirmed, will you urge the administration to appoint an advocate for religious and ethnic minorities as a public representative to the Cultural uh, Property Advisory Committee to ensure that minority populations are properly represented? Thank you, Senator. ECA is very proud of the work of the Cultural Heritage Center to protect and preserve global heritage. It is critically important work, as you've said. ECA can and should play a strong role, particularly in cooperating with law enforcement to prevent the financing of transnational terrorism through looting and trafficking of antiquities. If I'm confirmed, I look forward to working with Congress, other parts of the department, and private entities, particularly through the advisory committee, um, to ensure a diversity of perspective when continuing the important work as it was laid out originally by Congress. Okay, thank you. Um, Ms. Coleman, the United Nations Development Program and the World Health Organization recently reported that if low-income countries had similar COVID-19 vaccination rates as high-income countries, they could have added $38 billion to their collective GDPs in 2021. Through the G7, uh, we have announced ambitious plans to share 1 billion COVID-19 vaccine doses with low-income countries. Global vaccine inequity still remains a very serious challenge. With the rise of the Delta variant addressing uh, the vaccine equity issues are more urgent than ever. If confirmed, will you commit to prioritizing the push for increased vaccine manufacturing and equitable vaccine distribution in your role at USAID? Thank you, Senator. Uh, absolutely. Um, there's perhaps no greater challenge today than the global pandemic and, and its uh, secondary effects and how it's ravaging countries around the world. Um, and I'd like to thank uh, this, this committee and, and Congress for its generosity on providing the 500 million uh, vaccines and the $4 billion to, um, to Gavi. So it is um, uh, incredibly important to get the rest of the world vaccinated. And I echo President Biden's comment to be uh, that the United States should be the, the arsenal of vaccination, and I will do everything I can to make that happen. Thank you. And uh, Mr. Liu, uh, climate change is an existential threat that continues to harm the quality of life for people all around the world. For that reason, our efforts to combat climate change must be closely aligned with efforts playing out in multilateral institutions like the United Nations. We also have to oversee any multilateral commitments to ensure they come to actionable fruition. How can we work to reform the UN system to ensure that climate commitments are monitored and measured so that they don't simply remain empty statements or words? Senator, thank you for that question. I certainly uh, share your concerns. Um, the Biden administration believes that we can be the most effective in multilateral organizations when we actively participate in them. And we have the greatest uh, credibility in these organizations when we pay our dues in full and on time. So being an active player gives us that leverage. 
Uh, climate change in particular is an important policy issue, as you well know, not only to the President, but to Ambassador Thomas Greenfield. This is an issue that she has raised in the UN Security Council. Uh, but it's frankly an issue that cuts across so many different parts of the multilateral system. So if it confirmed this position, I will use my uh, uh, position in terms of managing programs to ensure that those that relate to climate change are effectively managed and well-funded. Thank you so much. And, uh, and Mr. Gifford, um, in, in your role, um, you're welcoming the rest of the world to the State Department, to the White House. Um, we've gone through um, a turbulent time over a four-year period, and now we're trying to restabilize all of our relationships. Could you just step back for a second and just lay out why you think that's important that we uh, respect each nation in the world and that we treat them uh, in a way that uh, ensures ultimately that we'll be able to elicit from them uh, the kind of response that the United States is looking for on policy issues all across the spectrum. Uh, thank you, Senator. I, there, um, uh, this is, again, something very near and dear to my heart. I, uh, there are two words over the, during the time that I've been preparing for this hearing and whatnot that keep coming up. And those two words are dignity and respect. And I pledge to you um, that when I think about this job, when I think about how we interact with world leaders um, when, and partners, partner countries around the world, I, I will lead with dignity and respect. And I think that um, I, the soft power of diplomacy cannot be overstated. And, and as you mentioned, you're the first hand that, they, that folks shake when they're walking down their plane at Andrews or at Dulles or whatever it may be. And um, I think if Sen Senator Haggerty said in his introduction of me that, um, or, uh, that we create the environment conducive to diplomacy. And as far as I'm concerned, that is the way you create that environment in which diplomacy can thrive. You do that uh, with dignity and respect. Beautiful, thank you. Thank you, and thank each and every one of you for your willingness to serve. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Senator Haggerty. Thank you, Chairman Cardin. I wanted to just follow up with a few additional questions. You're very kind to let me do that. Um, first, if I could turn to you, Ms. Satterfield, it's wonderful to see you here. In your opening testimony, you commented about the global competition for influence that we find ourselves in with authoritarian countries such as China and Russia. I'd like to compliment your department on the wonderful work that they've done with uh, human exchanges, particularly the Fulbright program and other exchange programs that I've seen firsthand have an enormous impact. I'd also like to make a comment that there's an alumni network there that I see as immensely valuable, and I look forward to working with you to driving value from that alumni network, because I think it can make a real difference for the United States' interest around the globe. Um, Another thing you mentioned, and I compliment you for your operational experience, you talked about implementing standards and metrics to, to basically be a good steward of U.S. taxpayer dollars as you look at this program uh, and, and take a data-driven approach to how you measure and evaluate what happens. Could you talk a bit about how you might use that approach to evaluate how we are doing versus China and Russia, the two authoritarian countries that are trying to exert their influence when you look at our programs relative to what they're doing. Thank you, Senator. Um, as it relates to measurement and evaluation, it, it's a critically important point and one that the Bureau has been working very hard to come up with a way to 
uh, have parity across the various programs. They're also different, and that's a good thing. We want a variety of opportunity because what works in one um, community might not work in another, but that's proven to be challenging for M&E. And the Bureau has done a really wonderful job, in my opinion, um, based on the information that I've received in preparing for this hearing to create a program that is a new framework that will allow ECA to have more data at its fingertips so that we can make good data-driven um, decisions. And that'll be rolled out Bureau-wide at the end of next year. As a business person, um, I've always focused on competition. I think we should acknowledge what our competition is and measure our performance according to that competition. So I encourage you to continue to proceed in that fashion. Thank you. Thank you, Senator. Mr. Liu, if I could turn to you for a moment. Uh, I'd like to talk with you about the Human Rights Council. The Biden administration has announced its intent to run for a seat on the council this fall. And Secretary of State Blinken has also acknowledged that the council is flawed and he's promised to seek reform. In fact, in 2011, the Obama administration stated that the mandatory review of the council failed to yield even minimally positive results. So Mr. Liu, if you're confirmed, I'd like to understand the type of reforms that you would like to seek as, as you look at improving the United Nations Human Rights Council. Uh, thank you, Senator Haggerty. Uh, I agree. Um, the UN Human Rights Council is a flawed organization. Uh, but we also need to recognize the important work that it has done in terms of shining a spotlight, a spotlight on abuses in Syria, Iran, North Korea, its promotion of women, uh, LGBTQ individuals. Uh, but it has a persistent anti-Israel bias uh, based on a, a permanent agenda item at its meetings. The Biden administration believes, as I said to Senator Markey, that the best way to reform these organizations is by engaging with them. Uh, and that's what we intend to do. Uh, it is also a flawed organization because of the membership. We have some of the most egregious human rights abusers who are members of the Human Rights Council. Uh, when Ambassador Thomas Greenfield has addressed this issue, she said, um, yes, it is uncomfortable sitting side by side with these people, but it is as uncomfortable for them to be sitting next to us and for us to be calling them out. Uh, and I understand that the record has shown that when the U.S. actively engages in the Human Rights Council, the, the, the uh, number of anti-Israel resolutions decreases. But you are 100% right. This will be a challenge. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. I want to thank all of our nominees today for their appearance. Thank you. Let me again thank all of our uh, witnesses uh, for uh, nominees for your uh, testimony today and again your willingness to serve. Uh, the committee record will remain open through Thursday for questions for the record and we would ask that you respond to those questions as promptly as possible. Uh, we know that we have a backlog in uh, the nomination process and confirmation process so your cooperation will be uh, deeply appreciated and once again uh, we thank you very much for your willingness to serve. With that, the committee will stand adjourned.